0: Speaking of rockets and Hawaii, uh, my wife and I did get to, after a couple years delay, go on our anniversary trip uh, that we had been looking forward to so much to Hawaii. Um, So uh, we had a great time. Uh, Thanks for letting us have a break. Um, But uh, we were there last Sunday, which was the 4th of July, as many of you hopefully noticed. Uh, The 4th of July is marked with a lot of explosions. Maybe that's the rockets he's talking about, I don't know. Uh, But what we noticed in Hawaii on the 4th of July was that there was a lack of fireworks. Um, In fact, we saw very, very few fireworks, and there was also a lack of flags. In fact, the only American flags that I saw while we were in the state of Hawaii were at post offices or at the police station. Uh, There's not a lot of American flags and not a lot of patriotism displayed. In fact, on the 4th of July, we had to run into a big department store. And mind you, this is an American department store um, going in to get some groceries and such. And as we're walking in, um, we're walking past all these vehicles. And I noticed there's one vehicle that, mind you, is an American-made vehicle. And all over it were all these signs and chalk paint and everything that said, we are not American just over and over, all over it, we are not American, on the 4th of July, and I thought, like, man, like, in an American vehicle, at a very American department store, <laughs> but boldly proclaiming we are not American, and, and there's this tension that some of you may know, that like, not all Hawaiians are happy to be part of the United States, and I'm not knocking any of them, but it was just this weird tension on the 4th of July, to see these people kind of positing themselves against this whole day celebration they're like it felt a little bit treasonous or like a betrayal almost Um, and then you start to think about the day itself and and i used to be a history teacher and and i love our country and everything i'm not at all i'm saying anything negative about it but you you read american history from an american history textbook and it will look very different than if you were in say the uk and you read about the american revolution Um, the way that we interpret this day that we celebrate um, the way that they see it is that was a whole lot of treason and betrayal. Whereas we say, well, no, it's this beautiful thing that brought about this beautiful country. And so there are just so many different ways, and, and it just becomes kind of blurry. So, like, what is actually um, true in terms of who is treasonous or who is the betrayer, and, and what is the betrayal? What are you actually betraying? Um, but it begs the question because I think every one of us, if you have lived any time on this planet, know the feeling, the deep, sickening feeling of being betrayed. When someone that you trust or someone that you were under and had to, had to look to them for something decided intentionally to betray your trust, to turn against you, and that's a hurt. And you may have felt that with friends growing up. Oh, if you've been through middle school, you know betrayal. <laughs> if, if, if you've experienced that on a team, if you've experienced that um, in your Place of employment, you may have experienced that in your own household, maybe with your spouse. There's a sense of betrayal, this deep pain. And so it begs the question, as we're in this series, um, a seat at the table, that like you belong here. And we're supposed to extend that invitation to everyone, that you belong at the table, there's a seat for you at the table. And yet, we're we're called to be peacemakers and, and practice and pursue hospitality. And how do we reconcile all of that with betrayal. In the midst of betrayal, how can we live at peace? And I'm going to say it again, we keep repeating this, but you will not be able to live at peace externally until you find peace internally. And that internal peace is only found with peace that the gospel brings, the good news that you were the enemy of God. But while you were his enemy, Christ died for us. He came to reconcile us, to bring us back to the Father, to make peace through the shed blood of his own on the cross. And so Today, to wrestle with that question, I want to know and live and experience peace even in the midst of betrayal. Don't you? So we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you wanna make ready your copy of scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're continuing this narrative. I'm looking at the life of David. And um, at this point, I, I hope that you've kind of followed along enough to realize like we, we have grown in love with the character of David. David is this man that scripture calls it, like God said, he's a man after my own heart. And so David, the little shepherd boy who dad didn't even think to bring him when the prophet came and said, one of your sons is gonna be anointed as the next king because Saul, the first king, has been rejected because of his disobedience. And, And so David, this unassuming shepherd boy, suddenly is anointed king, and then he goes and he's living and working in the court of the king Saul, who is going crazier and crazier, and so David becomes successful. You know, he kills the giant Goliath, and he's victorious in all these battles with the Philistines and all this stuff, and so Saul becomes jealous of David and his success, and so Saul wants to kill him. There's this whole back and forth, and we read just like this kind of like crazy, like just up and down fiasco of Saul pursuing David in the wilderness, and David is hiding. David, David eventually flees, and he's living with the Philistines, and then there's this battle. And, And so David has proven over and over, Saul, I'm not your enemy. And Saul over and over is like, okay, you're not. But then ultimately, Saul has to die. Saul is killed with his sons in battle with the Philistines. And so David has become free. He is the king now of Israel. What God had promised has come about. David is established as the king. He's growing his own family he has children, he has this capital, he's in Jerusalem, the capital of the nation, and he's governing, and all this is going on. Um, there's this crazy fiasco that because kids are in the room, I'm not gonna say it out loud, but parents, if you wanna go back and read it, and you can decide when your kids can read it, but there's this thing that happens between some of his kids that's crazy. One of them is Absalom, and Absalom ends up killing his sibling, and so Absalom flees, and David, ultimately, after some years, brings Absalom back to the capital, And so you need to know this about Absalom. Absalom it is said that he is beautiful like no one else in Israel. It says that from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, there is no blemish. He is a gorgeous man. In fact, he has to cut his hair every year because his hair grows so much. It's so thick and so beautiful that it weighs pounds at a time. And so this guy is impressive. He is a gorgeous man, And so he is back in the capital, and that is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're gonna start in verse one. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. So if you have read the scriptures, some flags should have just went up for you. Because up to this point in the scriptures, only the enemies of God's people had chariots. And so now David's son Absalom, who is gorgeous, has bought himself a chariot. And he's riding around and he's got these 50 men to kind of parade around him. And so some flags should immediately be going up. Boy, well, what's the deal, Absalom? What are you doing with the chariot, man? Verse two, he would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, what city are you from? If he replied, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, If only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. When a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him, and kissed him. Absalom did all this to the Israelites, who came to the king for settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here's Absalom. Absalom practicing some brilliant and cunning politics. He sets up in the city gate where everyone is kind of funneled through. And so if you're coming to see the king, you're going to have to come through the gates. And so Absalom has positioned himself in a strategic place to where everyone coming with any kind of grievance can come here, see him, how gorgeous he is. And they would come, and because Absalom is part of the royal family and it would be obvious as such, they would come and they would bow down to pay homage to him. But instead, Absalom was like, no, 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 no come up here and he would kiss them. He would touch them. He would become close. He would become intimate with the people of Israel. And so he's winning the hearts of Israel. And all the while, he's kind of playing this little coy game of like, you know, I, I know you're coming here for justice, but the king's just so busy. If only he would appoint me as ruler, as judge, so that I could just kind of be the arbiter of peace for you. I could help you. But there's just, it's not in the cards right now. No one to help you. Sorry. But man, I would love to help you. And so it's painting this kind of negative light on King David and this positive light on him that I'm, I'm actually far more capable. I'd really love to help you out if only I could. And if, if, if he would make me have a little more power then I could do this for you. And so he's winning the hearts of Israel. So verse seven, when four years had passed, Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. For your servant made a vow when I lived in Geshur of Aram, saying, if the Lord really brings me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Uh, also should be a flag to us, right? <laughs> he's been back for four years, and now he's coming to Dad, to King David, and saying, hey, Dad, uh, can I go to Hebron? Because I actually made a vow that if I got to come back to Jerusalem, then I would go sacrifice here. So why the delay? But this is what King David says, verse nine. Go in peace, the king said to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent agents throughout the tribes of Israel with his message. When you hear the sound of the ram's horn, you are to say, Absalom has become king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem went with Absalom. They had been invited and were going innocently, for they did not know the whole situation. While he was offering the sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel, the Galanite, from his city of Gilo. So the conspiracy grew strong and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. So here it is. This is the real plan of Absalom revealed to us. Absalom is staging a coup. He has won the hearts of Israel. He's politically kind of maneuvered himself into this position to cast a negative light on King David and... Promote himself like I could do so much more. And so now he's tricked his father David, saying, Hey, I made a vow. I need to go sacrifice in Hebron. And so King David's like, Okay, go ahead. And so he leaves. He takes 200 unknowing men with him. But these are men of stature and influence. These are people of power that have come with him. And now as they're going, he's sending messengers throughout the entire kingdom because remember, he's won the hearts of Israel so all these people and all the tribes they love him they're looking forward to what he's going to do and he's saying, listen when you hear the trumpet when you hear the horn then you need to know that Absalom has been made king and so they'll rally together around him this is the plan of Absalom now verse 13 then an informer came to David and reported the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem get up we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servant said to the king, whatever my lord the king decides, we are your servants. Then the king set out and his entire household followed him. But he left behind 10 concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out and all the people followed him. They stopped at the last house while all the servants marched past him. Then all the Cherithonites, the Pelethites, and the people of Gath, 600 men who came with him from there marched past the king. This is what we call a double bind. You ever been at the restaurant and it's time to order and you're like, get this, I can get this, I really want this, but I really want that, and if I choose this and I can't get that, and if I choose this, I can't get that, and you're like, you get into this kind of calamity, that's called a double bind, and it creates anxiety for you. This, a decision must be made. Or, in other terms, and not so trivial, this is a lose-lose situation. In counseling, um, this double bind, lose-lose situation is one of the main things that generates anxiety for us. Have you been there? You're experiencing anxiety because there just does not seem to be a way to make the right decision. If I stay here with my family and all these people, Absalom and his forces will come and slaughter us. If I leave here, I vacate the throne. I lose my crown. I'm no longer the functional king of Israel. How do I win? And maybe you're there, maybe it's not a throne that's, that's being played over. But what is it in your life that's creating so much anxiety for you because there's not a right decision? There's just loss or loss. And just some simple pastoral counsel for you? You just make a choice, and you move with it. Sometimes that is necessary. Because often what happens is the anxiety of being stuck in the decision-making process is actually far worse than just living out the consequences of one of those choices. Because the reality is we are on a broken planet and we are sinners. There is brokenness surrounding us. And so there's not always going to be a best option Sometimes you just need to make a choice. So seek biblical counsel. Look to the scriptures. Hear the word of God. Seek godly counsel from other people that you trust are further along in their faith journey. Listen, that is wisdom. But then you must decide and move. And So David makes the decision. We have to get out of here. Are they going to slaughter us all? And so he leaves. They're marching out. Verse 13. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 19. The king said to Atai of Gath, Why are you also going with us? Go back and stay with the new king since you're both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us today while I go wherever I can? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But in response, it's I vowed to the king, as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king is, whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. March on, David replied to Atai. So Atai of Gath marched past with all his men and the dependents who were with him. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the Kidron Valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. David, the king leaving the throne, his family, those loyal to him, and all of the countryside is watching as they cross the Kedron Valley, leading out into the wilderness, and there is weeping, there is grieving, there is lamenting, there is sorrow, crying as they're marching out across the Kedron Valley. And if you're familiar with the Gospel stories, does this remind you of something that would happen as people would go crossing the Kidron Valley, weeping, full of grief and sorrow? Because if you fast forward about a 1,000 years, there's a night when Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and his closest friends, his 12 disciples, are in an upper room, and it's Passover. And Jesus has done just incredible things that day leading up to it, and now he's here in this intimate setting with his closest friends. And he's here, and he's eating, and nobody has washed their feet, and here is Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, Who gets down, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around him, and is on his hands and knees and is washing the filth from between the toes of his friends, saying, I'll serve you. And now you need to love each other as I have loved you. And then part of this conversation, he says, You know, one of you is actually going to betray me. And all the disciples are looking around, like, Surely not I, not me, not me. And Peter looks across at John and is like, Hey, ask him, because John's right next to him. Ask him who it is. And he's like, well, the one who's gonna dip in the cup with me. But none of them figured out, like, who is it? Like, these are Jesus' closest friends. These guys, for about three years, have been wandering around, most of the time, not even having a home to sleep in, in tents and stuff, like, cuddled up next to him to try to stay warm. Jesus has worked with these men with his hands. He has preached with them. He has cast out demons. He has healed the sick. He's done all these crazy cool things with his closest friends. They have been like brothers for years now and they're in this beautiful setting and Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me. I'm like, no. And then Judas, who's known as the treasure, um, Jesus looks over at him and was like, go do what you're gonna do and do it fast. And Judas takes off. And none of the other disciples question it. Because Judas has them all convinced. Like, well, he's the treasurer. He holds the money. So they assume, well, Jesus must be sending him out to go give some money to the poor, to take care of some logistics or something. And so Judas leaves. And we know what Judas has done is he's already made an arrangement for 30 pieces of silver Judas has betrayed Jesus. He has sold him out. And so now he goes to gather up the people who are gonna come and arrest Jesus and he's gonna come and now Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Kidron Valley. They've just sung a hymn after observing the Passover supper. They've sung a hymn and now they're coming out and Jesus is in great anxiety, in great turmoil, knowing that he's about to go to his arrest and ultimately to the cross to take on the sin of the world and die this barbaric death because his friend betrayed him. And so he's crying as his friends are following him across the Kidron Valley because that is what would be necessary to get to the Mount of Olives, to get to Gethsemane. And as Jesus is going here, you just think back to this betrayal. As Absalom, the son, betrays his father David and they leave grieving. And now Judas betrays his friend Jesus, the true son, who would never betray his father and Jesus comes out crossing the Kidron Valley grieving, weeping because of this betrayal and then Judas shows up with officers and the chief priests with clubs and torches as Jesus' other friends can't stay awake while well, Jesus has a panic attack and is so stressed he's sweating blood and there's an angel that has shown up and is ministering to him and then Jesus wakes them up again and he's like, look, come on, they're coming, wake up. They come to arrest him, and they don't know exactly who it is. You imagine they're all kind of tense. And Judas comes up and kisses Jesus the kiss of betrayal. You betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Ah, oh, what agony. And I want you to think about this from two perspectives. Think about this from the perspective of the betrayed. If you think back to David's story, this is David's own son who has betrayed him, who is now a threat to his life. For Absalom to want to stage this coup, that means that David knows my son wants me to die. That the only way that his throne will be established is for me to die. He's coming to kill me. So David, his own son, wants his blood. You know, in Hawaii, I'm not a super emotional guy. Maybe I am, I don't know. But there were two moments where I actually teared up a bit. You want to know what I was thinking about both moments? My son. Like, everywhere we went, I just kept thinking, like, I bet Leland would love this. Like, Leland's probably not quite old enough to do this. This is crazy dangerous. But he would so love this. I was constantly thinking, of, like, and, and I think back, like, in those moments, I'm like, man, When Leland was like three years old and I was the coolest person in the world and now he's seven and he doesn't think I'm the coolest person in the world. But there was a time when like Leland and I would just sit there and build Legos and and he would just be so enamored and like everything daddy did was the coolest thing ever and everything he did was the coolest thing ever and it was just this beautiful thing and I just have to imagine David crying as he's crossing the Kidron Valley thinking about his own son Absalom. Like Absalom, we used to build forts with sticks, brother. (laughs) Like, how much he would love his son, and here comes his son to kill him. Like, what kind of betrayal is that? Man, the pain is real. And hear this David didn't hide from it, he didn't shy away from it, he grieved it. God does not want you to just see pain and just get over it. We are human, and you have real emotion there's a right way to handle that, but the right way to handle that is to not just ignore it. Betrayal hurts. It hurts. And Jesus, one of his closest friends, one of the 12 that Jesus chose, and yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He knew what was to come, but he still went through all of this, investing in Judas. Imagine their late night conversations. And the way that all the other friends had no idea that Judas was going to do this, he had convinced them all. And now here's Judas betraying him. And yet Jesus presses on, knowing his betrayer and the betrayal that is coming. Why would he press on? He pressed on because he could see beyond the immediate hurt. He could set his eyes on something more. He was living and dying for more than what the betrayal could take from him. That is how he could keep on moving. You know, David was betrayed by his own son, but there is a son who will never betray his father, and is Jesus, the son of God, would never betray the ultimate father, God, our father in heaven. This is the gospel, this is the good news, that Jesus was always faithful. When you and I are not faithful, Jesus is faithful. He never failed. He never sinned. And we are sinners. We are dead in our sin. And yet Jesus came as the light of the world, broke into the darkness. And the sinless Son of God, faithful forever to the will of the Father, never betraying the Father, went obediently to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve so that on the cross, he would exchange his righteousness for our sin, taking all of our guilt, all of our condemnation, having it nailed to the cross. Everything that we are ashamed of has been paid for. It has been bought and covered, atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. He did that willingly, and he walked through the sorrow of going to that cross because he could see beyond that immediate hurt and see that there was peace to come in spite of this betrayal. That actually, in God's sovereignty and providence, this betrayal would actually work for our good and his glory. And isn't that his promise? So, from the perspective of the betrayer, we now turn. What was it like to be the one betraying a loved one? For Absalom and for Judas, the betrayal was about self-gain. And really, if we think about it, every time we've ever betrayed anyone or anyone betrays us, it's about self gain. It's about the promotion of the self. It's selfishness, it's the ego taking over. And so, what was to be gained for the self? In Absalom's case, it was the kingdom, it was the pursuit of vanity and glory, of the power and prestige of the throne that Absalom was not okay just being a prince. He needed to be king. And so for self-gain, he sought to usurp the throne, to oust his father David, to kill his own father so that he could become king. His vanity was that large. For Judas, was 30 pieces of silver. Just 30 pieces of silver. And this should not shock us if we we're reading through the Gospel of John. Um, John has already given away, he spoiled this to know that Judas is the betrayer. Because in John chapter six, Jesus is in Bethany and he comes to the house of Lazarus that he raised from the dead. And Mary and Martha are there. And Martha's doing all kinds of stuff. But Mary comes and she anoints Jesus' body with this nard, this precious oil that's worth 300 denarii. And so she's done this and Jesus says she's prepared my body for burial but this is what Judas speaks up. Judas the treasurer, the guy who's in charge of the money bag. He says this, it says in verse four through six, it says, then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds pretty pious, right? We could, you don't need to waste that perfume. We could sell that for almost a year's wages. Think of all the poor people we could feed with that. This is crazy what excess, what a waste, why would you do this? But then John continues, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. The Judas was always about self-gain, even when he had the entire room convinced that he's yet another follower of Jesus. I want to be a man after your heart, Jesus. I want to follow after you. (gasps) What, all that expensive perfume? how many poor people could we feed? Like, we could take care of so many needs. Why was this wasted? That's not because he actually cared about the poor. It's because he was regularly dipping into that. And you think about that. He wasn't stealing everything. Just enough to get a little gain here and there. But still letting ministry happen and flourish. Like, none of the disciples are catching on. All that money that's being donated, where's it all going? We can't do ministry no, Judas is allowing ministry to continue, and yet he's just secretly slipping just a little here and there for a little bit of self-gain. Is that us? I read this quote, uh, Marshall Siegel. He said, ask yourself what Judas would do in your situation. How would he feel about your current income, shopping habits, and retirement savings? How uneasy would he be about your generosity? Does your budget begin to look like his just 2,000 years later? This is not a guilt trip to give more. But please find freedom, I, I don't want to find myself at the end of my life saying I was just like Judas. That I'd allow enough to go out for ministry to flourish. But man, just to line my pockets, I take a little here and there just to gain a little more. And, and there's nothing wrong with spending money and having money. That is not the problem, just don't let it have you. Don't let it be the thing that's actually driving you as it clearly was for Judas, so much so that for 30 pieces of silver, he would betray the son of God. So we have to ask, at what cost? For the betrayer, to to do this betrayal in pursuit of self-gain, was there a cost to that? Is there a cost to betrayal for Absalom remember his head of hair, that he'd have to cut pounds of it off every year? It was kind of the, the, like, the climax of his vanity. Like, his beauty was like, all culminated in this massive head of hair that was just so beautiful. And he loved it. And his, his source of vanity became his own undoing. Because as you read through the story, David has fled and he gets his troops together and Absalom is kind of conjuring up this massive army and they're gonna go try it, like in the words of their counselor, like let's fall like dew on the ground, like just absolutely destroy David and his men. But when the battle comes, Absalom full of vanity, so vain, his head full of hair frolicking behind him as he rides his mule. He goes under an oak tree and that massive head of hair gets stuck in the thick of the branches and he's hanging as the mule rides out from under him and he's stuck there. And you just imagine this man full of vanity having betrayed his father because his vanity was fueling him towards it. And the source of his vanity, the symbol of his vanity has him stuck in an oak tree until the enemy as David's men surround him and kill him. His vanity, his betrayal cost him his life. Or Judas. You know, Judas did exactly what was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah and Zechariah. In Zechariah 11, 12 to 13, it said, "Um, this is the prophet Zechariah speaking after. He's done some things in obedience to the Lord, and this is what God tells him. Then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price, I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Well, that seems really random and weird for a prophet to do, but they were always doing really random and weird things. But then we gain clarity and understanding when we see Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to do his work. The chief priests had given him 30 pieces of silver. Judas betrays Jesus and is so overcome with remorse and guilt over what he has done that he comes back to the chief priest, to the house of God, to the temple, and he tries to give it back and they say, we can't take it, it's blood money. And so he throws it into the house of the Lord, just like Zechariah. And Zechariah threw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. And so the chief priests are like, well, we've got 30 pieces of silver, it's blood money. We're like, we can't actually accept that into the treasury, what are we gonna do with it? Judas, meanwhile, goes and hangs himself. He hangs himself, the branch breaks, he falls into this field. And so the chief priests are like, well, we'll just use that money to buy that field. And guess who owned the field? A potter. And so he buys this potter field. The betrayal, the 30 pieces of silver. What was the cost for Judas. His life, it cost his life. So hear this, what you gain in betrayal is surely going to betray you in death. Anything that you could gain in betrayal is surely going to betray you in death. As Absalom and Judas both learn. So life and pursuit of self gain is really just a life lived for performance. None of the disciples challenged Judas as he had them all convinced. It was a great performance. Everyone would look at him. What an awesome follower of Christ. They had no idea, no suspicion. He's just performing, and his performance led to the ultimate performance. As he failed in his betrayal, his final performance was the ultimate act of failure to take his own life. Because if your life is lived as just a performance, that is all it leads to is death. And this is the gospel that you cannot perform your way in. You just trust the merit of Christ, who has accomplished and achieved everything for us. Trust him. Judas ended his life in failure as the ultimate act of performance to take his own life. And I think of Peter, who also failed. Peter also betrayed Jesus, you know, as Jesus foretold, that you would deny me three times before the rooster crows, and he does. He betrays him three times and he's just beside himself with grief. It came true. Jesus even locked eyes with me the third time that I've denied him. What a betrayal. And yet Jesus, resurrected from the dead, comes to him on a beach. You know the story? Jesus comes to him. Hey, Simon, Peter, do you love me more than these? Like, yes, Lord. You know I love you. Well, Simon, Do you love me? You know everything. You you know I love you? Well, shepherd my sheep. And then Jesus asks the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter is just flipping out. You know everything. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. And what he's doing is he's restoring him. The three denials, the three betrayals of Peter, Jesus now gives him three opportunities to affirm your love for me. Do you love me? Now live out of that love. It is not about your performance because you've already failed in your performance. Now out of just the love and delight you have for me, now live and move. Do ministry. You're restored back to what i called you to. so Peter does. We know history plays out. He writes the first and second epistle of Peter. He is a a huge, just gospel advocate. He's taking this. He goes even to Rome. Like Peter, he sees that his betrayal was not the end, that he lives for more than just the performance. So I hope that you hear Jesus asking you, as I hear so often, just imagine walking down a beach and Jesus saying, yeah, you messed up but do you love me? Then let's go. That's not the end. Do you love me? Yeah, but you know, I just, I did this, no, 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 Kevin. Do you love me? You know everything. You know that I love you. Then let's go. This is not the end. And why? Because there's peace between us and God. So the bottom line, live for the Lord. The one who will never betray us, because there you will find peace. See the peace we have with God. There is nothing to gain but death and betrayal. But we thank God that even when he was betrayed, admit so he could bring us peace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thankful for this church, God, and God, your church throughout the ages. That even back to your disciples, as one of them was the utter betrayer, Judas that you showed love to him but then even to Peter God you you forgive you are gracious you are merciful you are compassionate you are slow to anger you are abounding in steadfast love that's who you are God we thank you for that as we confess that we are often guilty of betrayal but you are never going to betray us you've promised to never leave us and to never forsake us God, we thank you so much for that, that you're always faithful. We love you. We trust you because you're trustworthy. Would you help us to live at peace with you because you have brought peace for us. You have bought it with your blood, Jesus. And now let us extend that outwardly as we show hospitality to those around us and live as peacemakers, even when we're betrayed, that we can see, like David, that we can continue. And like Jesus, we can continue because the hurt of that betrayal is not the end. You are God, and you're redeeming all things. I thank you, we love you, and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.